You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me today. I'm so excited to chat with you about your book that came out called Desire, an inclusive guide to navigating libido differences in relationships. But before we dive into all that, can you just share with us more about what had you decide to become a sex therapist? Oh, it's a common question. Happy to answer. (laughs) People are often curious, right? Yes. You know, I think in large part, this sort of developed when I was a teenager. I had this idea that I wanted to be a therapist from a young age. And so I was sort of pursuing psychology since I first learned about it. But around that time, maybe 16, 17, there were also just so many questions I had about what people were doing in privacy, you know, behind closed doors. And and sex is not something that's talked about so openly. People are, you know, very hush-hush. There's still stigma around it. And I just found myself very curious, you know, curious about what my peers were doing, curious about just this area of life. And so I started, you know, reading some books that were geared towards teens at the time about, you know, sex education, just found it so fascinating and just wanted to keep learning more. And so I think it was as I entered my college years that I started to realize that I can blend these two things together and pursue psychology, but also pursue the sex therapy within that, you know, domain and actually help people destigmatize and learn and work on having more satisfying experiences. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. It's still very stigmatized. It's still something that people don't like to talk about. I think people don't even understand that it's something that you could need or or get support with, right, with your sex life. I think that it's a specific type of therapy. So for anyone who is even kind of like, what is sex therapy? What is the point of it? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what sex therapy is. What would you tell them? Yeah. Well, for starters, it's like other types of therapy in that we might meet either in person or virtually, depending on the therapist. Clothing stays on. Yeah. I feel like that's always something that they're worried that you're going to be coaching. Like, I don't know if it's from that movie, like Meet the Fockers, that like people think that sex therapy is like live coaching on sex or something. There's still that sort of thinking out in the world, I think, you know, because there's just maybe not a lot of modeling in the media of what that actually looks like and accurate portrayals of that, just sort of the the funny, entertaining sort of version of that. But yeah, we, you know, it would be sitting in a chair, either opposite a therapist, uh, sometimes with a partner, could also be solo. And you're just talking about uh, often different things like dynamics between you and a partner, things like sexual shame. I help people uh, who have had pain with sex Uh, work on kind of finding the right treatment plan, the right diagnosis, and then how to approach making that A, not painful and B, more comfortable and enjoyable. I help folks who have arousal challenges, like let's say erection difficulties, performance anxiety, folks who have libido differences, which is the main topic of the book that I co-authored with my friend Jen Venzel. And so there's a variety of reasons why people come in. There are some folks who have Uh, you know, sort of deep histories of shame around sex, been taught, you know, messaging that sex is bad, dirty, wrong, or shameful. And so sex therapy is a space either individually or with a partner or partners to explore some of those things and to work towards finding more sort of sexual liberation and freedom. I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. One thing that I was really struck with when I was reading your book that I really loved was you had kind of talked about, or both of you guys had talked about how sex often, right, especially when there are differences in libidos, it's kind of often put on the person that has a lower libido as they are the one that has the problem. That is what needs to be fixed. And it had me just thinking about how much we measure and project that to have a satisfying romantic relationship, it involves a certain level of sex or even in the media sometimes, right? It's like people say, what is the right amount of sex to have? And it's also, right, we could get into how it's overly focused on intercourse even too. But where does 
some of that stuff come from and how does that show up in your work? Yeah, you know, I think that there is, I, I call it sort of the Goldilocks effect in, in a way. It's like, we should all be having a certain amount of sex that's not too much, but not too little. <laughs> and you get messaging for both, right? That if you have mm-hmm. so much sex, it's like, what's going on there? And where yeah. do you have the time? And what, you know, what, what is that about? Yeah. But if you're having too little sex, it's like, oh, that automatically means something is wrong, either with you, with your relationships. So you get both sides of that coin. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes from, um, I kind of boil it down to two places. One is we don't get good sex education, so we don't have a measure of mm. what to expect. It's one of the you know most important things for some people. Uh, it's not the most important thing for everybody, but it's one where we're really not given good and um, accurate education about what to expect in a sexual life, solo and partnered. And so then two what we have is just media depictions of sex and sexuality. And those are, you know, designed to be entertaining and funny and dramatic, but they're not necessarily and often are really just not good representations of what to expect in your life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure, right, how you would answer the question also is that it, it is so personal. It very much depends. And I think one thing, you know, just in my experience of having a baby and things like that, I think we also kind of think that your libido is kind of set or you have this normal amount that it is and and it doesn't change that much or it, it just goes down. So yeah, it's. I think it was really interesting. And you talked about this obviously in your book too of just how your libido isn't just like – set. And I think it's something we sometimes think is like this innate part of ourselves, which probably makes people feel like, well, what's the point of sex therapy? Because this is just who I am when there are things you can do to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, someone recently was like, you know, I'm, I'm learning that libido is not like eye color, right? Like you're just born with this way and that, you know, it's unchanging throughout the course of your lifetime, that libido is a spectrum and it's dynamic and it can really fluctuate and shift over the course of a relationship and an individual's lifetime. And so um, rather than sort of seeing that as something that's wrong or that like there's mm. pathology in that, we're trying to really get the message out that that's to be expected. That's how that works. You're going to go through different seasons of both your own life. And if you're partnered of a relationship and you can notice libido changes throughout the course of one relationship or across relationships, uh, depending on that relationship's dynamics and the stressors that you have going on in your life at that time. Yeah. And it is interesting how even though I know all of this, I still have to keep reminding myself because I just think it's so inherent in the media that your Goldilocks theory, that you should have a certain amount of sex and that means something or not having enough sex means something else. And the reality is that it's not good or bad, right? Right, right. And and, and it is so dynamic because, you know, I, I – try very hard to never really give a direct answer because I don't think we have a good answer to how much sex should, should you be having. You know, there's there's numbers out there like once a week is a great amount and there's some relational yeah. satisfaction that comes with once a week. We do know that more than a certain amount doesn't equate to relational satisfaction or happiness. So, okay. you know, multiple times a week doesn't necessarily get you further than once a week. The thing is, it really is so dynamic because mm-hmm. if what you're doing is saying, okay, what's the quote unquote normal amount that I should be having? And then you go aim for that. What does that actually translate to or look like for you, right? If you're just now going through motions to check a box to say, I did my sex thing once a week because, you know, experts said I should, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're having good quality sex. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you want or need, what your partner wants or needs, or what's best for that particular relationship. So even if you have a number, it's, it, it depends on like, what does that actually mean for you? And I, like many sex therapists, are much more interested in quality mm-hmm. over quantity. Because if you're just having sort of obligatory chore-like sex mm-hmm. to check yeah. that box, it's not going to be sex that's going to help anyone's libido. Yeah. And when you say 
sex that helps one's libido? What is helping your libido look like? Yeah. And really it's pleasure or satisfaction, right? You're going to want something that you get something out of. And that applies not just to sex, but to most motivational systems of, you know, anything, whether it's a type of food that you like to eat, whether it's an activity you enjoy, you're going to want it and look forward to it when you get something positively reinforcing out of it. Yeah. And is that why, because there's also been right conversation about whether sex is a need or sex is a desire What does current research kind of reflect about that now? Controversial topic that I steer (laughs) far away from on social media (laughs) because it's so probably charged and heated for folks. You know, what most sex therapists and researchers know is that sex is not a drive. It's an incentive Mm -hmm. motivation system. What does that mean? We kind of look at drives and drive theory as what you do to keep alive as a human system that if you go a certain amount of time without, you will not survive. Mm -hmm. So drives are things like thirst and hunger and rest. Those are some of the the top drives that we have. We do have a need for connection. Mm -hmm. We know that from research about what can happen and how we can fail to thrive and how loneliness is so uh, harmful for us as humans. So we have a need for connection, but you know, drives and drive theory is really about what you do to keep your system alive. And we all know that sex doesn't exactly work like that, that you can go as many people have proven, yeah. you know, days, months, or years without sex and survive and even thrive as a human, maybe not for every individual person, but for many people. So it operates a little bit differently than like a hunger drive or a thirst drive. And so we understand it to be an incentive motivation system, meaning that we need to have our own personal reason or motivator to want to engage in this type of activity. And there are some people who have tons of motivators, and it's a very strong incentive. And there are many people who have few, if any, motivators and very little incentive. And so what we do with that is kind of exploring, particularly for folks who say, you know, maybe their libido feels low, or it's, you know, just not something that they're thinking about. I always like to start with, tell me about, you know, sex that would feel or, or maybe even broaden to intimacy, physical touch that would feel pleasurable or motivating or incentivizing to you. What happens for a lot of folks who, um, you know, kind of self-label as low libido is they end up having sex for their partner or that centers around their partner who maybe has a higher libido. And so over time, what they're doing is maybe bypassing their own pleasure to center their partners because they feel bad or they feel pressure or they feel like they should to be a good partner. Maybe even they feel like guilted into it. And over time, the sex that they're having is really centering one person's experience, not theirs. And that's not going to stoke libido for that person. What it's going to do is it's going to create an association with sex that's either this is a chore, it's a duty, it's an obligation. And the kind of sex you're having is likely not very pleasurable because I would be surprised to hear somebody who's saying I'm very present in that moment and I'm really in my body and I'm having this great time when I'm just checking the box. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think it's, you know, it creates almost this self-fulfilling prophecy too, I think. And you talked about this in your book of when one person is doing, you know, having sex primarily to satisfy someone else's needs, you're not going to be thinking about what's pleasurable for you. You're not going to be like you said, present in the experience, enjoying the experience, thinking about other ways that you can cultivate this feeling good for you because you're kind of just trying to get it over with and it creates this whole thing then where probably it's not as pleasurable for the other person because they know that you're not into it and it creates this this is why people may need support from your book or from seeing you because it creates this interesting dynamic. It creates a cycle that that both sort of feeds itself, like you said, and, and just keeps kind of going in that sort of circular direction. 
And it's like, you know, when you're not that interested, let's say you do engage in sex for your partner, for example, that you might be, you know, what I hear from a lot of folks is like, I just want to kind of hurry through it and cut to the chase, so to speak. Like, let's get to, to your point, often centering, you know, penetrative sex, centering orgasms. Let's get to those things. Don't worry about me. Don't, let's not, you know, engage in a lot of touch. Let's just get to, you know, the bottom line and be able to move on. What that does, A, perfectly understandable why you would do that. But B, kind of leaves you then with an experience that doesn't center anything that's maybe pleasurable for you or it's mm-hmm. bypassing things that you would otherwise want to engage in. It's mm-hmm. creating a very specific kind of experience that then is thus not very reinforcing to repeat again. Mm-hmm. And so then we get stuck in that loop, right? I'm having sex. It's not sex that does much for me. I'm doing it for the other person it then becomes a not so pleasurable or enjoyable experience. And I just continue to not want it. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, I have a hunch, but right. If someone, and obviously like there's nothing wrong with someone, like we've talked about people have different libidos. It may not be an issue for someone who's not super interested in having sex. It sounds like a lot of times it becomes, sometimes people end up in a relationship and that may reveal some of these difficult like differences or things like that but if someone were asking you well this this is just kind of working for me right now and and I am in that dynamic that you're talking about but you know I I would rather just stay in that dynamic obviously they have choice to do that but am I correct in what you're saying though is one of the potential problems that may develop down the road is like you may get into this cycle where the more you kind of disconnect from your body, disconnect from sex, the harder it may be to spontaneously desire your partner or you're eroding your libido. I don't know if you'd use that phrase or what would you say? Yeah, I think you bring up a good point that, you know, you absolutely get to decide what you do with differences in in libido among partners. And and I will say that it's the norm to have differences in libido among partners, at least some of the time. For many partners, it's more of a perpetual thing and it's ongoing. But to expect for a lifetime or for a long-term relationship to have that match up all the time, every week, every month, every year is is not realistic. So you're going to have those differences and you get to decide what you do with that, right? Do you have sex to just sort of, the sex therapists used to call it, uh, I would I would never use this language now, but we used to call it maintenance sex. It was like sex to tr- just try to maintain that system, that flow so that it doesn't become, you know, awkward or it's been such a long time that it creates a lot of pressure around it. That's, you know, there's good, like I said, good reason for people to feel inclined to do that. You know, one thing I'll I'll highlight is the difference between responsive and spontaneous desire. Just in having this conversation, spontaneous desire is what most of us are familiar with. That's the kind of desire that just seems to emerge on its own, maybe comes on fairly quickly. You don't have to do very much to invite it in. Sort Mm -hmm. of that lightning bolt that just hits you. And that's what most people are familiar with when they're talking about desire. And that's what they're expecting their experience to be. And when Mm -hmm. they don't experience that, they call that often low libido or Mm. believe that maybe something is wrong. That is, in fact, a a way of experiencing desire. And it's one that many people have. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's the one that we get shown in movies and shows and things like that. But it's not the only type of desire. Um, There's another important pathway to desire that many people are not familiar with. And we call it responsive desire. And that just means that often there has to be something that's sexually appealing or stimulating or arousing in order for desire to come online. And for many folks that comes about sort of after arousal has started, you might start to feel something in your body first, and then Mm -hmm. the mental interest follows. And so when we're talking about what to do in these you know, partnerships or long-term relationships where there's desire differences, we have many options. Um, one of the things I like to explore with folks, you know, the folks who uh, identify as lower libido, they tend to be more responsive in their desire is, mm. is really what's happening for them. Um, not always, but often. And so one of the things I like to explore with the folks I work with is what stimulus brings out that desire response in you. 
if you were to read like a romantic book, some literatica or, you know, something like that. (laughs) If you were to watch a movie with a really, you know, steamy scene in it, Mm -hmm. um, if you were to see, you know, your favorite celebrity with, you know, some sort of outfit on, are there things like that that might, you know, bring out a little bit of that mental interest for you? Mm -hmm. Let's explore those things because, It makes sense to me that if your responsive desire style um, is more predominant, and if that's the style that you experience most, you could go days, weeks, or months without much of a stimulus that provokes that responsive desire for you. You know, if you're Mm -hmm. heading to work and sitting in traffic and doing whatever day-to-day that you do, there may not be much that's sexually provocative or stimulating or appealing about that. Mm-hmm. So it just makes sense to me. And I really like to right. normalize that. Like, of course, mm-hmm. you're not thinking about this because there's nothing very sexy about the day that you just described to me. Yeah. yeah. And that's just not how your libido works. Mm-hmm. For many people, just understanding responsive desire, having that word, having uh, a concept of sort of what that means, for many folks, that in and of itself is transformative. Yeah, that makes so much sense. My brain really changed when I when I read Come As You Are and I yeah. understood the the dual control model. For those people, you will be able to explain it much better than me, Lauren. Can you share a little bit about what that means? And I think especially it is more common, I think, for women or people with vulvas or vaginas to, I think, be more, as I'm broadly speaking, right, on that not having always spontaneous desire because of some of the things potentially too that I think we were talking about before we started this podcast, like purity culture, like shame, like all of these things I think we don't think about, but they can also impact our libido. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely a nod to Come As You Are, uh, written by the amazing Emily Nagoski. And and she is one of the first to really popularize some of these concepts around the different types of uh, desire and the dual control model. The dual control model is just uh, basically some research that points to this idea that we have a whole host of things that kind of hit the brakes for us around sex. If you were to imagine this as sort of like a car or sort of a a vehicle of some sort, you've got a whole host of things that'll hit the brakes. They inhibit your sexual response. And there are a whole host of things that might hit the gas or the accelerator, so to speak. They're things that excite you. They move you towards sex. So some things move you towards, some things move you away. And everyone's sort of personal system or mechanism looks a bit different. Some people have more sensitive um, accelerators, which means Mm -hmm. that it may not take very many things or it doesn't require a lot to move towards sex. There are some people who have more sensitive breaks, meaning that it may not take a lot for them to be completely disinterested or unable to move forward. And so those lists of things are usually all the things that are impacting you as an individual then can have an impact um, on your sexual response, which includes desire. And it's interesting. It's so individual for some people, you know, the more stress that's applied to their life, the more interested they are Mm. in sex or sexual release. And for other people, it works the opposite. The more stress that's applied in their life, the lower down the list sex goes and they need to be able to de-stress and regulate before they can even think about it let alone engage. So having some, you know, understanding of some of the variables that hit your brakes and hit your gas, that's one of the things we do often in a sex therapy session, though you certainly Mm. can do that from some of the reading and we include that in our book as well, just kind of getting a sense of what are those things for you because there might be some of those variables that we can either eliminate or lessen Mm-hmm. And there might be other things that we just have to figure out a work around, right? Like if you have kids in the house, they're probably not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> we need to find a workaround to, you know, how to still engage in sex or find ways to be intimate, even with a kid in the house. Yeah. So there's that piece. You know, I think the sense is that women tend to have more of a mm-hmm. uh, responsive desire But I think, you know, there's been some research and some, you know, thought coming out about 
all of the things that may be impacting women in dynamic ways mm-hmm. that may not inherently be like, you know, people with vulvas are just born with less spontaneous desire. And more like there are all these systems that we experience throughout our lives that may be hitting those break systems, things like diet culture, things like purity culture, things like heteronormativity, things like, you know, women who are partnered with men tend to have a disproportionate amount of mental load and emotional labor on Mm. their shoulders. So when you take all of those things and put it together, I've been bogged down with messages that my body needs to look a certain way. I've done a ton of stuff around the house to care for either the household or the family. I have maybe been taught from a young age that my own body is not to be touched or even gross. And now I'm supposed to have an equal playing field to folks who are socialized as boys and men. And it just makes so much sense to me that it complicates the landscape. And it's really then hard to tell, you know, sort of the nature versus nurture. Like, Mm -hmm. are we born? Is there something biological in us? I'm of the opinion that there's a lot of sociocultural factors that play a role in why it might be hard if we're speaking about, you know, women in particular, why it might be harder for many women and not all women Mm-hmm. Uh, but many women to um, experience a consistent libido or to have that yeah. interest in um, in partnered sex. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting of just, you know, I've been with my husband for a while now. And I think what's so interesting is when he gains weight or he's not happy with his body, it is very solely around his body, right? It's just like, I don't like how I look. And that's That's the lens that it kind of stays, where if you look at often women, right, or even my own experiences, it's like, I don't like my body. I am gross, right? I am unworthy. It so quickly isn't just about our body anymore. It becomes – it has all of these much broader meanings about us, and I think that that is just a small example, but I think about that a lot in the context of diet culture and what it robs us of. Obviously, you know, men experience diet culture as well, but I think that as a woman, right, often when you are taught that your body is like one of the most important things about you, it is your worth in so many ways, it is very hard to just have a bad body image day and not have it mean all of these much bigger things. Absolutely. I think, and again, we're talking about, you know, as a whole, there's plenty of women who are partnered with men who have higher libido than their partners. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of men who experience negative impact from diet culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're also looking at what populations get disproportionately impacted by these oppressive systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, people who are socialized as women, raised as women and girls, um, inclusive of all women really get a disproportionate amount of messaging about um, how their bodies should look. And there's also a lot of media messaging on what we should be doing to make ourselves ready for sex and sexually mm. appealing, right? That yeah. before I would even engage, I should be doing X, Y, Z to make myself more objectively appealing to a partner. Whereas there's less of that messaging, I think, that goes out to men as a whole, right? For many men, mm. it's like, just show up. Yeah. <laughs> and for a lot of women, it's like, I have to do this whole maybe ritual to make myself, whether it's something I put on my body or something I take off my body mm-hmm. or, you know, what have you to make myself appealing. There's a lot that women are taught to do to service the male gaze. And so again, all of these variables impact you, impact your sexuality. And so when you package all of that together, boy, if I have to, you know, go through a whole host of things to ready myself, ready my body, be present, mm-hmm. it's a lot of things hitting the brakes. And so it makes yeah. sense then that there are a lot of folks who are out there saying, hey, it's just not something I'm thinking about. Or it feels like a whole song and dance to even think about approaching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that was when I was writing my book about alcohol that I really realized was I think such a big thing that people don't think about is – because, right, like there's a lot of conversations about 
alcohol makes me horny or alcohol like allows me to be in the mood and how am I ever going to – you know, I think there's a lot of people that literally only really have sex when they're like under the influence in some ways. And I think what really clicked for me when I learned about the dual control model is that it's not – and based on research is it's not that alcohol – necessarily makes people more in the mood, but especially for women, it turns off some of those turnoffs because it disconnects you from the front part of your brain, right? That is surveying your body, that is wondering whether your partner is interested in you, that is, you know, self-conscious and monitoring yourself essentially. Yeah, it's inhibiting some of the inhibitors, right? They, yes. Uh, there's a, a phrase that goes back a long time, or a term rather, 50s and 60s. These were sex researchers, Masters and Johnson, who came up with a, a name called spectatoring. It's something that many mm. of us are familiar with and do, which is essentially this sort of like out of body judging and assessing mm -hmm. what's happening rather than just being in the experience and fully sort of embodied and, and in the moment. So it's that whole, you know, and it, it kind of goes through our heads, many of us, like, how does my body look in this position? And what is my partner yeah. thinking right now? And do I look okay? And do I smell okay? And is this taking too long? Mm -hmm. All of that is what we call spectatoring. Mm. And I think, you know, to your point, there might be some substances out there that folks have tried that quiet that. And so that might be lessening what's hitting the brakes or even mm. potentially, you know, kind of making it easier to hit the gas. And so yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense that some folks really struggle then with, you know, it, once I'm sober and in recovery, what do I do with that noise that's resurfacing? And that's that's something that, again, you know, is maybe something to talk about with a therapist, even a sex therapist, is like, mm -hmm. how do I rediscover my sexuality in the context of being sober now that maybe that looks really different than what it did when I was using? Yeah. And I think this is where, right, trauma, which is also intertwined with all the things we're talking about, purity culture too, of if you've had a traumatic experience with sex or you've just grown up in the trauma, right, of being told that you shouldn't have sex until this time or this type of sex is is wrong or bad, it really – what clicked for me when you were saying the word spectatoring, it like really gives the spectators a lot of really good, you know, extra comments to say. Yeah, it, it does such a disservice to then later on being able to experience your sexuality in whatever way you'd like to, in whatever way feels right to you. And, and it almost makes it hard to sort of know what's me and my preferences mm -hmm. and part of who I am and what's all the messaging that's just influencing how I'm showing up and what I experience, right? Do I really think that that thing is gross or have I been told so many times that that's gross? And how do I untangle that? And I don't have any simple answer for that. I think it's a process <laughs> and it's an unraveling and it's it's, you know, it's rediscovering sexuality under a different lens and in a different way and Unfortunately, that's usually, you know, a process, just like anything that's sort of a, mm -hmm. an evolution or change process is unwinding those things. But I, I find that, you know, folks who are raised in purity culture or messages uh, of the like can really struggle, even if they quote unquote did everything right, can still struggle. Mm -hmm. Even if you follow all the rules you were taught, it's really hard if you have, you know, decades of years of filing sex away as something that you avoid and you steer clear of, you shut down your fantasies, you shut down your desires, you shut down your arousal, and then suddenly you become an adult, maybe you get married, or maybe you're deconstructing and you just decide, I don't want to follow or adhere to the rules that I was taught. Many people struggle for that to just be like an on-off switch that they just go, okay, now it's all on and it's all okay and I can go forward and just enjoy this. For many people, they might find that it's kind of a touch and go. There's part of me that really wants to move towards this and explore and feel some freedom with my sexuality and there's still this part of me maybe that feels inhibited or held back or that part that maybe gets frozen or shut down when I try to approach mm -hmm. it because it hits still as like a danger cue. 
it's like, I shouldn't Mm. be doing this. Well, I think that is one thing that you touched on that is so hard is in typical purity culture, you know, Christian based ideas is right. Like the moment you're supposed to be pure and abstain and not have thoughts or fantasies until the moment that you, you know, get married. And then I see this a lot too, like, you know, as someone who is on social media and on TikTok and Instagram and, you know, you get exposed sometimes to people who are preaching this stuff and things like that. And it is, it's so like illogical and opposite that someone who has abstained from sex for their whole life until they got married, right, is now this expectation shifts that you're supposed to be having the best sex of your life and you're supposed to have all of this desire to your point when it's been repressed and shut down and you've been told potentially that it's it's bad and you're bad for having those thoughts but now the context changes and it's supposed to be like amazing and great it it misses the part and 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 I want to clarify like I am for whatever you decide works for you and if that means yeah. you know abstaining from partnered sex until you get married I support that If that means, you know, engaging in solo sex and not partner, like whatever that looks like for you, I want people to feel empowered, but I want them to have information to make decisions about their bodies and their lives and their relationships so that it's not just sort of prescribed as one way for everybody. We're humans, we're dynamic and we're individual. We need to be able to have information so we can decide what works best for us. Yes. With that said, there is often a cognitive and somatic disconnect with this experience. And what I mean by that is you might sort of in your thoughts and thinking be ready to move forward towards experiencing sex more positively and freely. You might be deconstructing, you might have gotten married, and now in your mind and your thinking, you're ready for something different. Your body still might be holding on to those cues that say, this is sexual, therefore stay away from it. And so sometimes we can have that disconnect that we're trying to, you know, kind of bring together so that what I'm trying to move towards, my body's also allowing me to move toward that with safety Mm. because that context might have changed, but sometimes our bodies don't fully know that yet. And so it's the same old cue, Uh uh-oh, there's skin, there's a fantasy, there's a feeling of arousal. It hits as a danger cue, and then we go into a stress response. We either, your heart starts pounding, or you shut down, or you get frozen. And so that's some of the work uh, as well. And in many ways, that really either is or overlaps with some trauma recovery. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, the age old... (sighs) thing that I think therapists say a lot, which is right, like your body may, your body and your mind may just like not be totally aligned. And even though you may be safe physically now, it doesn't mean that your body has necessarily gotten the memo. And I think probably part of your work and your beliefs, right, are that just because that's the case doesn't mean it's it's permanent. And and there are things that you can do to work on it if you'd like to change that. Right. And and really just so folks kind of know, what does that look like? Yeah. It means often breaking things down into smaller pieces, often smaller than that thinking part of your brain thinks is needed. So let's say, you know, you were raised in uh, a culture or a family where, you know, sex is wrong, bad, and shameful. Now you're older, you'd like to either, you know, move in a, in a more sex positive direction, or you got married, or, you know, something shifted, and now you'd like to engage in your sexuality in these ways. Mm-hmm. And your body is maybe saying, don't, don't go in that direction and trying to protect you. What we're mm-hmm. often then trying to do is too much too fast. So you mm-hmm. go from, you know, day one, I've had zero partnered sexual experience to day two, I'm trying to have all the partnered sexual experiences. Yeah. That may just be too much for your system. And if that is the case, what we're usually doing is slicing it a bit thinner. We're just taking what your goal is and breaking that up into something that doesn't hit that sort of overwhelm danger cue in the mm-hmm. same way. And that's essentially what sex therapy is uh, Mm. for a large part of of the work that we do is just breaking things down and really coming alongside you and helping you find what feels more tolerable for your system. Yeah. I had a ton of purity culture stuff come up for me 
when I got pregnant and it was almost an I'm just like, I guess, selfishly asking this. If you ever see this in your work of, I had this very strange shift that it felt like my whole life I was told like it would be terrible if you got pregnant, right? Out of wedlock. And then all of a sudden I got married and it was, you know, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to do, you know? And it was a very disorienting experience for me when I got pregnant of people in my family celebrating that I got pregnant and being happy about it. And I had a lot of disconnect over feeling like, for lack of a better word, like a walking poster of the fact that I had unprotected sex. And yeah, it it really got me thinking into maybe some of these like messages that I received growing up and how that how that shows up and and how that impacts you. And I think it's just so interesting how, you know, to your point, we don't even know how much we're impacted by this until something kind of reveals itself later. It makes so much sense. And I really think it speaks to sort of that on-off switch in some ways. Mm-hmm. You used a perfect word. It's disorienting mm-hmm. that on the one hand, we're saying, don't you dare, you know, have sex. And if you do, like people shouldn't know about it and it's private and it's behind closed doors. Suddenly, if you become pregnant, it's very apparent to the world. (laughs) And and I'll even caveat that saying that's not the only way that people get pregnant. So just to speak to that community and folks who uh, have achieved pregnancy outside of having, you know, penetrative sex, but boy, it's assumed that sex is how you got pregnant and now it's being celebrated or encouraged. You have people mm-hmm. in your life saying, when are you going to have more? When are you going to get pregnant? Yes. When are you going to do this? And essentially, you know, the very you know, bottom line is, when are you going to have more sex to get pregnant? Right? <laughs> and you're yes. like, this is really weird. Mm-hmm. Because something that was so important to abstain from or stay away from or keep private is now more public or you know, being celebrated, it's being treated very different. And it's the exact same thing, but across two different contexts being treated so differently. And that is so disorienting. And then I think, you know, you can even take that a step further and say that for some people, the experience of being pregnant and sort of focusing now on like, preparing for a child and, you know, your parenting part of you coming out. There are some people who have a really hard time kind of holding their sexy and sexual part of them alongside Mm. the, like, I'm becoming a parent and, and I need to, you know, follow certain rules and and adopt a role and be parental. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who really struggle with being a parent and being sexual simultaneously, mm-hmm. obviously not like in the same moment, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to have both of those things exist mm-hmm. in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Some people really can struggle with how do I do, you know, how, how do I have both of these things exist that I can be, you know, sexual and intimate with my, you know, partner or partners. And then I can also, you know, in another space, be a parent and those things can coexist. For some people that can be a new Thing to sort of work on, like how do I blend those two identities? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that makes so much sense, and especially yeah, like it is a very it was very disorienting for me. I think being like I am pregnant, like or I just gave birth, right? And like your body isn't yours anymore, and it is a very strange experience to try to navigate all of that together. And then I think you take the context of right? The on-off switches we've been talking about or the, you know, responsive desire and and all of that stuff. And it can definitely make things more complicated, especially if you're in maybe a heterosexual relationship where, right, you're pregnant and your partner isn't. So nothing's really changed for them, but like everything has changed and your body has changed for you. And just, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with feeling disoriented in their body just after giving birth in general also. Yeah, there's a whole sort of bubble you can kind of become immersed in, you know, during a pregnancy. It's different for the non-birthing parent. That's different for the birthing parent. You know, there can be birth trauma. There can be Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, much like we were talking earlier about how stress can increase libido for some and decrease for others. The same is true for pregnancy. So for some people, mm-hmm. they feel, you know, less inhibited. They're, yeah. you know, taking on a new, um, you know, shape and they feel mm-hmm. really empowered and free in that. Yeah. There's no worry about pregnancy now because or right. like getting pregnant because you're you're already yeah. there. Um, <laughs> and so for some people, that's a really you know, enjoyable time and they feel more heightened libido and other people are like, this is, you know, I don't feel great or, you know, my body's changing and I'm trying to, you know, kind of see how that lands for me and what that's like for me and I'm feeling very parental and I'm just not interested. So it it can go either way. Yeah. Is there anything, Lauren? I mean, I feel like there's a lot that we can leave people with and you've given people a lot of things, but to hone back into a little bit, if someone is listening to this, if someone ex- is experiencing a relationship where they have a difference in libido and things like that, regardless of whether they're on the higher or the lower end, what are some of the most important things that they can focus on or kind of hone in on? You know, um, some take-home messages are things like finding what incentivizes you if you decide that you want to engage in a sexual relationship with with a partner, which not every partnership does or individual does, but if that's part of your relationship, what would be motivating? What would feel good? What would feel pleasurable? Can we sprinkle some of that in or can we, you know, make sure that we're spending enough time kind of practicing and cultivating each person's uh, pleasurable experience? It's also really important, uh, and we didn't talk much about this, but we do in the book, about sort of diversifying and expanding what a sexual experience is like for you. Many of us follow a pretty standard sexual script that like starts here and ends here and has these components in between. And that in and of itself can act as an inhibitor or break for many folks who maybe I don't have the time, the energy or the interest to do that whole script. And so along with finding the things that are pleasurable and enjoyable, can we kind of talk about maybe a variety of ways to engage sexually or intimately so that you have multiple pathways to do that? Mm -hmm. Because maybe the kind of experience you have at the end of a long work day is going to be different than maybe what you do on a weekend when you're not working is maybe different from what you would do when you're on vacation is maybe different when you're in your thirties is when you're in your seventies so that we have these multiple ways to be sexual and to engage and to really kind of look at some of those motivators. If it's for connection, if it's for pleasure, those are top two. Mm -hmm. Um, We might be able to achieve some of that without always having to follow a rigid script. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking of how, right, it lowers the bar for maybe if we're talking about those micro steps, if you, if it's not just you're having sex or not having sex, there's a huge wide spectrum of things that you may be interested in where maybe people who just have it that they're not very sexually active or sexually interested, it's because maybe they're only thinking of penetrative sex compared to all of these other. Is that something that you see a lot too in your work with people? Absolutely. I see so many folks, again, sort of self-proclaimed or self-labeled low desire folks. Mm -hmm. And when we start teasing that apart, I'm like, you know, what would like a full body massage how does that sound to you? And of course, not for everybody, but some people are like, oh my God, that would be amazing. Yeah. But what's their but? But it leads to XYZ mm-hmm. and I'm not as interested in XYZ. So I refrain from either engaging in or asking for what I would enjoy. And it's really important that for that person, if they have a partner who's willing, gets to experience some of that just as a standalone thing in and of itself. Can we have some times where we just do full body massage? Maybe we take turns or maybe it's something that's just for me that you're willing to do that just is a standalone activity for my pleasure and that's it. It's not a buildup to something else. That can be game changing for folks to be able to have experiences that are like that, that break the all or none, right? Are we going to have sex or not have sex? Well, Mm -hmm. let's define what the experience is going to be or what's on the table. Sometimes it's just full body massage. Maybe sometimes just let's get naked and have some skin to skin touch 
and lie down together and just talk and look at each other and spend a few minutes. Maybe it's, you know, hopping in the shower and soaping each other up and just being in each other's arms. There's all these different ways that you can connect intimately and sexually. The more expansive that is, likely the more intimate time you'll spend with a partner and the more sex will feel less like uh, checking a box and it'll be more like something that you look forward to. Yeah. I mean, I think that we talked about a lot, but I really love leaving people with if we can open up this conversation into sex is this huge, you know, is almost like a pleasure conversation, pleasure in your body sort of as well conversation. I think the takeaway is like you will probably also feel a lot more intimate. You'll feel more connected. You'll feel more pleasure. And it's it's kind of turning the the typical way I think people engage with sex on its head and expanding it so that the irony is that I think you will be a lot more connected to your partner if you broaden what you consider connection to be because like you said, so many people shut it down out of fear of you know, being pressured or not wanting it to go any farther. And it really is inviting willingness for, uh, you know, if you're in a couple and there's two partners for both, the higher desire partner may, you know, be called to express some willingness to expand that repertoire. If let's say they do feel very motivated for the kind of sex that they're already having to broaden that and say, hey, sometimes we're going to do something that maybe feels really pleasurable and maybe it's not going to be a whole package deal and maybe it's going to look a little bit like this. Are you willing to do that for me to discover things that might be more pleasurable if let's say I'm the, you know, quote unquote, lower desire partner mm-hmm. for the, you know, lower desire partner to, uh, you know, have some willingness and invitation to explore the things that would be enjoyable just for them. And what is it like to be just on the receiving end of pleasure? What would that look like? Love that. Where can people find your book and learn more about you and your practice? Well, I am pretty active on social media. It's um, at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy, and I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. And my website is drlaurenfogel.com. And the book is available, um, you know, across the U.S. and North America. It's available in some select countries as well. And um, you can find more information about that on my website. Amazing. Amazing. I'll have all of this linked in the show notes. Again, the book is called Desire, an Inclusive Guide to Navigating Libido Differences in Relationships. And shout out to my co-author, Dr. Jennifer Wenzel, because I did not do this alone and so grateful for her. So just want to nod to her. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. It was so great to chat with you, not just via text on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) So nice to see you face to face, Amanda. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 